from Hype Beast and Hype Radio, I am Jeff Staple, and this is The Business of Hype, a show about creative entrepreneurs, brand builders, innovators, and the realities behind the dreams they've built. Today's guest is one of the greatest skateboarders of all. You know what? Back up. He's one of the greatest athletes of all time. Period. Full stop. Skaters have the reputation of being slackers, losers, and kids who don't have any ambition or vision. But I know different. I've had the honor of being able to see the inner workings of Nike SB's headquarters, which is Nike's skateboarding division in the company. And they treat skateboarders the same way they treat basketball players and runners. And if you've ever had the opportunity to see a slow motion video of a kickflip, you'll understand what I mean. It seems physically impossible. Now, don't get me wrong, there are plenty of skateboarders that play that part. They hustle for decades, snag a few sponsors, finally get some checks, and finally live out their dreams. And then boom, they blow it all away. Today's guest is definitely not that. You will never hear him say this, so I'm gonna say it for him. He is the Michael Jordan of the sport. And while Tony Hawk is out there doing 720s in stadiums with a helmet and knee pads on, our guest this week stays in the streets and parks that raised him. He's either rocking Supreme or his own brand numbers or his very own signature Nikes. He's real, relatable, yet godly with the skills. He's helped pioneer the sport and elevate it to new levels, both physically and financially. And he's been doing it consistently for decades. I cannot wait to share this week's special live episode with the one and only Eric Costin. Hello, everybody. What's up? What's up, Eric? Hello. Hello? Yeah. All right. Woo! How does it feel to watch a video like that of yourself? Have you seen that before? <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen it in a while. I don't know. I don't watch too many really? videos of myself, actually. But <laughs> cool. It, I mean, it's good. It's just uh, when I watch it, I think of like the trips and the travel and the places we went to and who I was hanging out with. And yeah. The good times. Do you look at your own tricks and like examine it? Like, were you, are you thinking like, oh man, I could have done that better? Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. Um, from pretty critical of that, yeah. but sometimes it's, it's you know. Yeah. It can't be perfect, but yes, I do. I do look at the things. And yeah. Like, oh, I landed that. Look at my gear. What was I thinking? <laughs> All those shoes are sick, I remember those. You know, just, yeah. yeah. There was a couple of shots in there where you fell and wiped out, and I feel like one of the best attributes of being a good skater is actually knowing how to fall. Because, like, you fall with more grace than others. For the most part. Are, are, you, a better, are you a better faller? I, uh, yeah, I think that's something that's really important, is, like, knowing how to fall. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's... it's Kept me, you know, for the most part, pretty healthy over all, all this time. What's the worst injury you've sustained? Have you broken anything? Uh, like dislocated a finger. Wow. That's ankle sprain. That's nothing. <laughs> yeah, I've been pretty. <laughs> you need some wood to knock on. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Um, some people call you, uh, and I think a lot of people in this room would agree, like the Michael Jordan of skateboarding, which is pretty fucking incredible. Yeah, that's a heavy one to live up to. Yeah, I mean, if, if you were like the Michael Jordan of 
like anything. Like I could be the Michael Jordan of napping, and I'd be amazing. You know, but like, <laughs> that was a Michael Jordan. <laughs> how do you? <laughs> right? uh, how do you feel like trying to live up to that that moniker and that title? I I don't I don't know I don't I don't think about that moniker and trying to live up to it because uh, like I said that's a tall order yeah but I just I don't know I just I guess continue to do do me uh huh you know I, yeah but I try I definitely don't think about that I'm like oh I gotta be the Michael Jordan of skateboarding I just, I, I <laughs> it's too much pressure yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, I want to take it back to the beginning a little bit, all the way to the beginning. And you were actually born in Bangkok, right? Yeah. How did that happen? How, how were you born in Bangkok and then end up in Cali? Uh, my dad was in the Air Force okay. station there. Uh -huh. And that's where he met my mom. I was born there, but I, I didn't live, uh, I only lived there for eight, nine months, mm -hmm. and then moved to California. And when was the first time you put your feet on a skateboard? Um. The first time, I was around 10 years old. Mm -hmm. I just kind of messed around on it, and then I didn't really get into it until till I was about 11. And when you say get into it, like, were you immediately, like, obviously good at it? No, no, I remember every, you know, learning how to just, like, ride off a curb, mm -hmm. small curb by my house, and then learning how to ollie in my driveway. I remember just hours, kind of, just by myself, Putting my wheels like in a crack in my driveway so my board would roll. Uh -huh. so would, you have a track, yeah. So I could stay still and just learn how to ollie, just because I wanted it ollie. And I right. Because I wanted to be able to skate fast enough to go and ollie up a curb where I didn't have to get off my board and pick it up because I thought that was like I'm a poser. It's embarrassing. Like, I gotta learn how to ollie up a curb so I can keep moving, you know. And this is like 11. This is like 11 years old. Like 11. <laughs> when did you realize like? you were excelling above and beyond other people around you. When did you get a knack for it? Um, I don't know, I just started to happen kind of, I guess started, once I learned tricks, yeah. this is like in the mid 80s, so tricks were, I feel like, a lot easier. <laughs> you know, there's a little, little bit more, there's simpler times. Right. Um, but I feel like, yeah, it just started to happen. Uh -huh. Once I learned one trick, then I learned another trick, and it, it, then I just kept going. I, just kept... I guess I'm like sort of comparing it to, like if you're on a basketball court, right, and you see like just a, a bunch of kids playing, and there's one kid that just doesn't miss, and you're like, it's sort of markedly obvious that like, oh, he, someone needs to like draft him. Yeah. Was it like that with you, where like you have a whole bunch of kids skating in the park, and you're just nailing everything that you're trying to do? Was it like that? Um, not necessarily like in one place. Yeah. It was the way I got sort of hooked up and, and started getting sponsors was through just like a, a friend of a friend who mm -hmm. was a professional. His name was Eddie O'Gara. Mm -hmm. He lived, fortunately, he lived in San Bernardino where I grew up. And uh, my, my other friend Tony skated with him a lot, and then I started hanging out with Eddie. And he started giving me his like used boards, and then started giving me new ones, and started just was flowing me stuff. So, and that's and it kind of progressed from there. And he put me, he helped me get on the, the company, which is H Street, and that was my first sponsor. And Eddie Ilgera was the one who kind of ushered me in. Mm -hmm. And sponsor meaning you just got free stuff. Yeah, just free stuff. Okay. Just free boards and right clothes. <laughs> and when that happened, were you like, I made it? 
yeah. I did it. Like, oh, yeah. yeah, I was was tripping. Yeah, it was, it was pretty surreal because, and H Street at the time was like, like my favorite brand. Okay. Too. So it was because it had a lot of, it's a very progressive company. Yeah. The guys on the team were very, very like. I didn't think I was, you know, worthy of being right. on H Street. I was, <laughs> and I think it, you know, it probably helped even push me even more. Because yeah. I was like, oh, that was something that I had to live up to. I right, like, right. How old were you then? Uh, when H Street started flowing you? 15. With his career, Eric can be described as so many things. Humble and focused are definitely some of them. He doesn't prescribe to the airness moniker, but many believe it fits. It may be too much pressure, but like he said, he's just here to do him, and doing him has gotten him far. Eric is a hero and idol to so many people, young and old. What he's done on the board is the stuff of legends. Off the board, he'll soon redefine what a sponsorship deal for a skater looks like. Kids today model their entire career off his path. He's made and continues to make a major impact on skateboarding. And to think, it all started on a board at 10 and getting sponsored at 15. When I was 15, I was probably spending way too many hours trying to beat a video game. Did I know where I was going to be today? Hell no. Eric is a phenom, a person blessed with a God-given talent. What makes Eric successful though is that he found his calling and he recognized that this is what he should be doing for the rest of his life. Forget the critics, ignore the haters, and quell the fear. You think his elders were supporting him to be a pro skater at 15? You think my family was cheering me on to print t-shirts and make a streetwear brand? Of course not. But Eric willed himself to create his future. And for you out there, listen, you have a skill, you have a passion, there's only two questions. One, whether you found it yet or not. And then two, whether you have the audacity to think that can become a reality. Um, growing up was, you know, just because we mentioned being born in, in um, Bangkok and your mother being Asian, so you're half Asian. Did race ever play a role growing up? Like just dealing with that, like, no, you know, no. No. Race, no, because... Cali's pretty diverse, right, I guess. What's that? Cali is, like, yeah. just pretty diverse. Yeah, where I grew up is pretty diverse, yeah. too. Yeah. Um, so I never really dealt with anything from a race standpoint. Like, no one ever said, like, you're Asian, so you can't be, like, an athlete or be a skater. No. It was more, I think, it was more of a point of... Kind of when I got into high school, skateboarding wasn't that cool. Mm -hmm. It started to... It was also starting, the popularity was starting to like decline as well. It was more about people just like jocks and gangsters, like vibing me yeah. being a skater. Right. That's, that's I've, that, I mean, that was the most, yeah. you know, anything sort of close to racism <laughs> I can experience right. is like, that's like skateboardism. Social classism. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> skatism. Uh, they, yeah, that was there was a time that we were, it was not cool. When and it was when you five say it was like, skaters in high school. When, high yeah, school. when you said it was like falling on popularity, you mm -hmm. mean it was from like the initial 
huge popularity, yeah. right? Yeah, because in the mid-'80s when I started, it was, it was pumping, like, mm -hmm. everybody. Like, uh, it was, yeah, a movies, lot of people did. Yeah, like it was music movies, videos. yeah, exactly. It was Gleaming the Cube and Thrashing. Yeah. Yep. So. And then, yeah, and then it sort of became, like, corny for a bit of time. Yeah. Did you ever think, like, oh, man, I'm going to hang it up. This is, like, pretty corny. No, no, not okay. when it looked bad. It was funny, like right when I turned pro, you know, when I was just like, like, oh, I'm finally making money skateboarding. Yeah, there was no money in it. <laughs> there was nothing. <laughs> it was small, you know. It was, uh, it was kind of going through an evolution of like extremely technical skateboarding, and mm -hmm. it was slow, <laughs> and the board was just flipping and bouncing around on the ground, and probably put, people couldn't understand it. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> and, and uh, it didn't. It just didn't look that good. You right. know, if you look back at it, you're like, "Wow, that was some yeah. rough times." Right. Is that when it was like full on knee pad, elbow pad, helmet? Like, no, that was when we were. Although it's kind of coming back now, it was like huge pants that were like maroon, you know, chinos, like fuck pants uh -huh, uh -huh. that were like were cutting off. And I was, you know, I'm wearing size 40s. Yeah. Uh, and. And it's like, it looks like, like you're going to rave. Like <laughs> extra large t-shirts, but that were extra, even longer than an extra large. And we were just, we were just draped in yeah. cotton <laughs> and skating slow and hats like this. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so you stuck then, through it. Yeah. Um, you mentioned a pay, like you started to actually make some money. Who was like your early paying sponsors? Um, well, H Street was the one I turned pro. Yeah, okay. I turned pro for, yes. And then, and then shortly, kind of sh shortly after I turned pro, I left them and uh -huh. went to a company that uh, that was not as Copus, his, okay. his company, 101. Okay. But nobody really probably knows about that <laughs> brand anymore. I want to break it down a little bit because I think, you know, me, I'm not like a, from skateboarding, so I'm looking at it from the outside. And then I think a lot of young people here who are, really good skateboarders but are not a pro or mm -hmm. don't have a deal. What does it entail to first get sponsored just to get gear and then advance that into getting like a check out of it? Talk, talk us through like that whole process. Uh, well, in this, this day and age, you know, mm -hmm. it's gonna, it's, it's a lot easier for your, for you to be seen and circulated through Social network, mm -hmm. YouTube, um, and that's kind of how it's you know really that's the, that's the changing. Back when I was doing it, it was actually through competition. Okay, I had to do well in competitions mm -hmm. enough in amateur competitions that then people would enter notice. a pro contest. Yeah, yeah and that those days are gone. Uh huh. Um, that is some way for some guys, but there's also <laughs> a you know you can do it just by filming video parts and getting coverage. Yeah. Um, and now that stuff, like, if you stand out through your social channels, people will find you now. Yeah. So right. kids are pretty lucky that, you know, it's just, yeah. like, readily available right here on my phone. Right, right. Um, they can, but, yeah, you just got to okay. kind of do you. And, and, and now, I mean, but there's a lot. Mm -hmm. So there's some originality that needs to be put out there. Right. The problem is even though it's easy for you because you have the technology in your phone, so does everyone else. So does everyone else. Yeah. It's oversaturated. It's right. Just, so standing out is something that is, 
And I, I don't know what that is. You know, I don't know there's no secret sauce. Everyone just has their own way. Their yeah. own way. Would you say now it's more important to have um, better skill or better style? Uh, I, always, I always think it's better to have better style. Okay. Over <laughs> skill. Style in your skate in or your style in your look, like your brand? I think style in your skating. Then, I mean, look... You know, that yeah. kind of comes and goes. But, on but, in, but, you know, on Instagram, I see, I'll see, like, a dude skating in, like, the latest off-whites or whatever, mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden that guy's, like, viral. Yeah. yeah so that's, totally. like, style because of how he of brands himself. Yeah, yeah, they're rocking crazy Balenciaga shoes. Right, and right. Like skating a skate park. But yeah. You still people are good. attracted to that, yeah, because yeah. it looks... Whoa, that guy, you know, he shouldn't be skating in that. Mm -hmm. So that's, I think that's more of the shock, shock right. value. But um, I think it's a little, lot more important the way you skate. Yeah, yeah. Oversaturation is definitely prevalent today. It doesn't matter what industry you're part of, you'll hear the same argument. There are so many clothing brands today, so many rappers who sound the same, so many designers who use the same references, so many skaters trying to get the same look as the next guy. Here's a test, try this. Ask anyone what they think of the current state of X, and I'm sure they'll say the market is so flooded with Y. So how do you break that? It's simple, add your own originality. But sometimes we're paralyzed by the fear of quote unquote being original. But forget all that. In fact, go back a few seasons and listen to the episode with the rapper and artist shirt. His mentality is, go ahead and try to copy someone to a T. Go ahead, you almost can't. By the sheer act of simply attempting to do it, you are already adding something original to it. The worst thing you can do is not even try at all. Eric knows it, I know it, and I'm sure deep down you know it too. This is why we applaud the people and companies who break out and do their own thing. It's not because of the rewards they receive at the end, it's because they even tried in the first place. And I wanna add, Originality comes from having a clear point of view and purpose. Some of the biggest things past Business of Hype guests have learned through their journey is just things about themselves. A self-reflection period where they've been able to define why they're doing what they do and then confidently articulate that perspective. More often than not, that definition is what's used as the guiding principle for their whole entire business. Okay, so let's say kid takes your advice, he does his job, he gets out there, he builds his Instagram, social media, he has a style, he gets a following, and then if he's doing his job right, the DMs will start, like, it's, they're gonna hit you up via DM. Pretty much. Right, yeah. and they're gonna be like, hey, I have a bedsheet company, can I send you some bedsheets, right? It's gonna yeah. be like that. Yes. So what's your advice from that point? Like, should you just take everything that every single company hits you up about? Um, I don't, I, I've kind of never gone, gone about it that way, but, mm -hmm. you know, I can't speak on everybody, on everyone's behalf, but yeah, I would say be selective, uh -huh. you know, do support, if the, if a brand that you're into wants to get behind you, kind of maybe be patient for that. It's like, if you feel like you're going to take something purely for the money and you're, you're, you feel, you don't feel good about it, obviously there's something Wrong. Wrong there. Yeah, so, yeah. So, I mean, your, your instinct usually will tell you if you're 
if you're being a sellout or not, <laughs> you know? Yeah. With, um, with H Street and them finally giving you money, was that something that you asked for or they offered? No, they, they offered when I had a, when they, you know, they put out a pro model for me. You know, nice. I made a little uh, bit of royalties off of it. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so that's how it works in skate. Yeah, a lot, like, a lot of You get gear, yeah. and then they offer you a pro model, which then gets you money. Mm -hmm. And then you could call yourself a pro? Yes. That's it? Pretty much, yeah. Okay, cool. A company can pretty much... Uh, I'm just making board, sure. <laughs> they put a board out with your name on it, you're, you're pro. Okay. You know, that's, that's kind of the... That is the benchmark, Yeah, you know, is, it, is the board. Isn't it... I mean, again, this is me maybe sounding naive, but isn't it almost just as easy nowadays for you to just start your own brand? I did start my own <laughs> right. brand. <laughs> no. Right, okay, no, so let's talk about it that. Is. There's, there's, there are a lot of brands out there. Yeah. You know? And you could technically, yeah, start your own company and turn yourself pro. <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you could just make a skate deck and a t-shirt and now you have a brand. Yep. So let's, let's talk a little bit about that. Your first brand that you sort of started and helped mm -hmm. co-found, which, mm -hmm. what was it? Uh, four Star? Yeah. Yeah, that was myself and Guy Mariano. Mm -hmm. And that was run through Girl. And that was, that was the, the whole idea behind yeah. it was because there weren't many skate apparel brands. Mm -hmm. And we were spending so much time and money at, you know, Polo and Tommy Hilfiger and, and <laughs> Eddie Bauer and, you know, all... All that stuff, and we were like, "Why don't we, why don't we make this cargo pant? Yeah, like, but but flip it like this, and maybe use this other mm -hmm. this other pocket we see, and like, let's try to make this this anorak that Eddie Bauer does. But I don't like these, so we started modifying basically the stuff we were buying. Like, yeah. Oh, let's do that, you know, that that polo shirt, like, right, and, and and so on and so on, and that was just kind of like digging in our closets and sort of manipulating it the way we would like to have it as mm -hmm. sort of more our our vibe and more skate yeah. specific to right. even things that we're think you were thinking like technical mm -hmm. you know we were like nylon pants like that had vents so they yeah, could yeah. breathe right <laughs> things simple like that. stuff but yeah, like made like, for you guys yeah right was it a good um, business decision like were you making more money having your own brand than being sponsored by a clothing company no. As far as the business decision, maybe not the great. You know, why is that? Because you have was, to put money in. Yeah, I mean, okay. it was. It, it, it's hard to to take money from it when you're constantly putting money back into it, mm -hmm. because it is. It, it apparel is expensive. You want to make it good. Yeah. It costs money, and so we didn't take a lot of money because we had to put it back in to keep it going, you know? Right. And, but, and yeah, like I probably could have rode for Quicksilver and made it. Way more, yeah. Boatload of cash, <laughs> but I, I might not feel too good about myself, yeah, yeah. you know? And this is, it was a creative outlet, mm -hmm. another one, so. Yeah. You, uh, you took, the money that you put into it, was it made from your other sponsorship deals and just what competitions you were winning? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you'd win comps, get money, yeah. get sponsors, get money, and then Flip put it, it into, into four brand. star <laughs> yeah. and lose money there. Yeah, and lose money. I mean, we made some money, you know, uh -huh. but we didn't make a lot. We didn't, you didn't yeah. make a lot. Right. And because there were other, there were bigger apparel brands. You know, Who were the big ones then? I feel like 
Like I said, there was, that, that was a little bit later, but like Quicksilver and like uh, Volcom, mm -hmm. even, you know, something, you know, even though they're very surf. Yeah, but they were in uh, there, yeah. Yeah, they, you know, and the other guys that were kind of on the smaller side were like Four Star and Alphanumeric. Uh-huh. Uh, was Zoo York there yet? Zoo, uh, not, not, they weren't so heavily into the apparel side of things. They were, okay. They were more of a board brand okay. at that point. Yeah. Yeah. But you were like, were you showing at ASR, for example? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'd be showing it. ASR was like the big skate sh trade show in San Diego and Long Beach. But yeah, so you were like trying to sell the skate shops and like doing the whole thing. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's a real business. It is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's great to hear Eric being honest and real about this. He did everything you're supposed to, everything any brand owner would do. Find a core purpose on why you start the brand, be crystal clear with quality and design, and then go out there and sell the shit out of it. And like he said, it is damn hard. For those with aspirations to start their own brand, or maybe you're already doing it, I don't want to discourage you. Doing it is hard, even for someone with a name like Costin and a brand like Girl backing it. It's natural to think a celebrity can slap his name on something and it just sells automatically. The smart thing about Eric is, he was very aware of who the competition was. Because each competitor gets a piece of that pie, a slice of the core customer they were all competing for. Some competitors are bigger, and I mean huge, and some are smaller, but they have a rabid following. Do the knowledge with what you are creating. People aren't buying your brand, find out who they are buying from and learn. The knee-jerk reaction is to hate, but if people aren't buying from you and turning to another option, the best thing you can do is figure out why. And now back then, who was your shoe sponsor back then? Uh, S. Okay. Was how, was, how was your days at S? Those were uh, it was great because I, I was able to, you know, it's, my first signature shoe, uh -huh. and that was another thing I was super into. Was, yeah, you know, I'd, I'd been collecting sneakers for a long time, and then I was able to actually design one. Um, and uh, the Costin one, yeah, that came out in 1997. Legendary shoe. And that thing, yeah, and it was just it's cool. It was cool that, that that I was able to just I literally I just drew it. You know? Uh huh. I just drew like I had a bunch of shoes that I like. I like this panel. This sole, this midsole, that tooling, this this tread pattern, that 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 texture on the rubber, right. every little bit. Yeah, and I just kind of cobbled it together, and I just I just drew it. Right, and coming from like me, like street worlds, sneaker world, hip hop world, like that was one of the first skate shoes that like crossed over, where like it hit my radar, even though like I wasn't skating. So that was a big shoe, like. Yeah, I, I yeah I, I I started to notice people that did not skate wearing mm -hmm. my shoe, and it right. was definitely a, was a trip. You yeah, know? and, uh, and was that also like royalty? Like you just got a percentage of sales, mm -hmm. so that you did good on that one. Those days are great. <laughs> <laughs> Those are good days. Yeah, because um, yeah, we were. Were you an it. owner of the company? No. Okay. No. All right. I thought you made so much money that like they just had to give you a piece of the company or no, something. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Um, so then, why why leave S? Why why did you decide to depart? That ownership. What I I <laughs> I I wanted to like I wanted to 
you know, I was, was... You wanted a stake in the company. I was getting older, and I was like, yeah, I want a yeah. stake in it, so I just feel like I'm committed, this is where I'm at. And right. that was something that's always... was. That's how Lakai came about. Okay. And it was always there when they started. But I was like, oh, I can't leave, you know? When they actually started Lakai, they offered to... They wanted to bring me in. As equity? As an, as an, yeah, mm -hmm. equity partner, but also, yeah, okay. skateboarder. Um, and at the time, were you... Was your pro models like a significant portion of S's business? I would assume so. Like, I, I mean, I think so for the most part. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was pretty good, a good amount of it. You right. Know? There were other guys. They did have shoes, but yeah, I would say yeah, to some degree, it was a pretty good amount of their business. Okay. So then you got frustrated that they weren't giving you more that you wanted. A little bit. Yeah. I was just. I was thinking also like more job security too. You know, mm -hmm. like I'm getting older. Like what am I? You know, I would. I'd like to have something that I'm going to be working on when I can't skate. What if there was a, you know, I, there was a person that they eventually kicked off because he wasn't kind of yeah. living up to, you know, what their expectations. And I was like, When's, when, is it, that's going to happen to me. Mm -hmm. Shit, yeah, I better figure something out. Right. You know, I just, I don't want to wait for that to happen to me. Mm -hmm. I better do something. I better be proactive about it. Right. Smart. Sort of. <laughs> Did you have a you had an agent or anything? Do you have a manager or an agent I, like I on your side? I had one. Yeah, I I sort of do now, uh, but those days I didn't. Those days you just you just had just to try to get a own. meeting with the owners and be like negotiate this yeah, deal for yourself. Yeah, but those were friends, you know, and that's why they're also they're close and didn't have to get a meeting. It was like, hey, contracts up. Um, the, the offer's still here. You guys, right. well, we're going to give up our piece of the pie for you if you want right, to come right. over here. But that was, yeah, okay. that's what brought me over there. To Lakai. Yeah. Okay. You know, made less money, put money into it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Tough business decisions. Yeah. Okay. That, and then, of course. Owning footwear is very, and I learned quickly how expensive it is. And, you know, right. A lot. Um, and then, of course, the swoosh comes calling. Was that a tough decision to go from Lakai to, to Nike? <sighs> No, <laughs> it was. It, I, 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 like I said, it was tough learning the the, the business of it. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't necessarily that. I was definitely committed to 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 sticking it out with Lakai. But um, there were other partners that were not. Mm -hmm. Were making it hard. Yeah, I'll yeah. tell you, making it really hard. Okay. And but, so that's that's where the kind of I I didn't. The, the call from Nike didn't come before that. I just left. Oh, okay. I, I left Lakai. I just said, I, oh. I'm not going to... If we're going to butt heads and this is the way it's going to operate and you're not going to move or we can't kind of extract you guys, yeah. I'm, I have to, I'm going to give... I gave my ownership just, yeah, back gave it to back. and walked out the door. Basically. So there was a brief moment where you didn't have, like, a shoe deal. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then how long was that time? Um, Between Lakai and Nike? Probably four months or so. Okay, that's dope. That's fast. Yeah. Okay. But remind us, when Nike called you, what was the state and reputation of Nike in skateboarding at the time? I'm oh. just trying to remember, like, they had or already... SB? SB they did already, SB, right? Yeah, yeah, so it was already... This was kind of... Um... I feel like after like the big, you know, a little bit post, slightly post dunk boom. Okay. When the dunk was like. Yeah. It, it was it a came little back. bit after. Yeah. Okay. It was like kind of 
it was gone, had gone kind of not away totally, but mm -hmm. it was not as crazy as it was from 2002 to like 2006. Yeah. Did you have reservations about like the sellout? Thing? I mean, I did because I had my hesitations about Nike because I thought, okay, because of the first time they actually came into skateboarding and it was before SB and it was a really bad attempt and then they trashed it. Mm -hmm. And rightly so, actually, it was pretty bad. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> they should have kind of yeah. dumped it and reset it like they did. Yeah. But when you're younger and you see that, you're mm -hmm. like, oh, the big corporate monster. Yeah. It, it, they're going to just, they're going to throw you guys away like a piece of trash, yep. you know? Like, I had that same that, fear. That same fear. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and because I didn't know. Right. And later on, I started, you know, I started to meet the guys that are, had, you know, kind of close friends on the inside there. I was like other guys that even rode for the same companies as me, like Brian Anderson, mm -hmm. he was on, and, I, and I, was I was always super envious of all the shoes he got to skate in. Yeah. You know, even <laughs> yeah. when I was like on Lakai or, or even S, I was right. like, damn, those dunks are so sick. Yeah. Like, they look so cool. Um, and I, I mean, I collected them. Right. I've been collecting Nikes, like all the shoes I designed, even at S were like, I was knocking off Cross trainers, Jordan 12s, <laughs> Jordan 3s, like yep. all sorts of different, yeah, you yeah. know. That's dope. So it was kind of like a dream come true on the low. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was. Right. When, when the opportunity was there, yes, it was. Nice. For sure. How do you feel now about the, Maze Fest is kind of like indicative of this, but like the intersection of skate and street and like the whole, all the cultures like just colliding right now. Is it... Is it like surprising to you, or did you see the writing on the wall? Um, well, it's crazy that it's become more, it's, it's bigger, but it's always been, those cultures have always collided. Mm -hmm. It just hasn't been, it, it hasn't been sort of, uh, I guess, celebrated like this. Yeah, right. But it, it's always been around. It's yeah. always been around. We've been hanging with, you know, yeah. graffiti artists mm -hmm. and, and like, and other, like street, genres. other early yeah. streetwear brands that before they were called streetwear. Yeah, you know? yeah, totally. So, you know, hanging out at those stores like Triple Five Soul. You think about like yeah. back in like L.A. and getting like mixtapes and like all uh -huh. that stuff. That, that stuff was we didn't know what it was called. It was yeah. just, this is this shit's fresh. <laughs> right, yeah, totally. It's so funny, but like, yeah. so it's always been around. It's just now it's it seems to be much more. Elevated, celebrated, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. All right. That's all the time we have. Thanks a lot, Eric, for your time. Obrigado. Hey, thanks for listening to this special live episode with the hardest working man in skateboarding, Eric Costin. As always, you can find out more about the show and listen to other episodes at hypebeast.com slash radio. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. I personally use Anchor FM. Also, leave a comment and tell us what you think of the show and tell a friend about the show. It definitely helps out a lot. You can also reach out to me on Twitter. I'm at Jeff Staple, and we occasionally answer listener questions on the show. So if you have a question, shoot it over to questions at businessofhype.com. Hey, Dan, we got a question this week? Yeah, Jeff, we do. This week's question comes from Keon T. 
first of all, I've been following the show and the interviews, and I really like them because there's a lot of great insights to different aspects of business. I've always been interested to create a brand of my own. I've known that it won't be easy and there will be a lot of hard work, but it's something I've wanted to give a try. My issue is, due to the location I reside in, it's a disadvantage when it comes to shipping in regards to time and cost. So I'm thinking about approaching other online platforms and stockists to resolve that. Here are a few questions in mind. If approaching a stockist is a good idea, usually what are the charges or percentages of the goods? And finally, how can I prepare a proposal to approach them? Would be great if I can get some advice. Thanks and have a great day. Hey, Keon, thanks for that question. It's a good one. Um, so I want to address the first question that you had, or the first comment that you had, which is in regards to the location that you're residing in and that you think it's a disadvantage. Um, I think it's probably not as much of a disadvantage as you think it is. If you heard our previous episode with David Pruding from BFA, he's given you some great advice about how it doesn't matter where you come from. It's actually an advantage to have a different perspective from the typical New York, Paris, Tokyo perspective. If you can take what's going on in your hometown, no matter how big or small, and being able to tell that story through your brand, that's actually a unique advantage for you. Now, granted, you didn't say where you're from, but I imagine there's paved roads, electricity, and internet because you are listening to a podcast and you wrote this question in. So barring all that, if you have like the basic foundations of a society, I think you can make a brand irrespective of where you personally live at. So that's the first part. You asked some pretty specific questions in the other parts. Uh, you asked if approaching a stockist is a good idea. Um, definitely. I mean, the advantage of approaching a store or a stockist is that uh, A, they're giving you a big order, bigger than you selling to individual people online, right? That's one transaction at a time. When a store orders, you know, even a small store order is like a $1,000 order or a $2,000 order. That's considered like a pretty small order. Uh, even that is better than selling to like every single individual person out there. So from a financial standpoint, it helps you to get like a big order together, which helps you finance your production. Uh, and the other hand, it's actually great promotion. If that store is like a good quality store, which it should be because you shouldn't fulfill a bad quality store or a shady store. It should be a nice shop that represents their brands very well. So the other positive aspect of it is there's a there's an upside in the marketing. Your brand is represented amongst other great brands and hopefully the store represents it in a good way so that they are able to tell your brand story without you having to be there. The other way of doing it, which is direct to commerce on your own e-commerce, is all the customers have to come to you and read about your brand mission and learn about you on your website or your social media accounts. By working with a great stockist, everyone who walks into that store gets that same message. So that's the advantage of that. You asked also, usually what are the charges or the percentage of the goods? Okay, so at minimum, the very, very general rule of thumb is that you take how much you want your clothes to be retailing for. So retail is the price that a customer who walks into a store pays for the goods are. Uh, you want your retail price to be double the wholesale price. The wholesale price is the price that the store paid you for the goods, okay? So you want that to be at the very minimum double. And then you want the wholesale price to be double, at least, what you paid to have it made. 
and that's called Costs of Goods Sold, C-O-G-S or COGS. So I'll give you a little bit of a very simple math equation. If it costs you $5 to make a t-shirt, $5 is your cost of goods, you should be wholesaling that to a store for no less than $10. So you've doubled your five, you spent five, you've now made five by selling it to a store for 10. The store then takes that $10 shirt that they paid you for and they now charge the customer the retail price of $20. So the store makes $10 and that's how you get to a $20 retail shirt. So that's very simple math. That's also very simple, just double up, double up, double up. Now, that's the bare, bare minimum. You really don't wanna go below that if you wanna run a healthy business. A lot of businesses, especially luxury brands and streetwear brands, they even go above and beyond the doubling. They do 2.5 or 2.7 or even 3X. Um, so it just depends on what the market will bear in terms of how much they'll pay uh, for your brand. You know, like you've seen t-shirts, I'm sure, that are anywhere from $15 each retail all the way up to $150. What is the actual difference in that t-shirt? Sure, cotton might be better, construction might be a little bit better, but I guarantee you the cotton and the construction is not $145 better. It really comes down to the marketing. The marketing, the buzz, the celebrity sponsorship, those are the things that really add to the price of a garment and make people feel like it's justified to pay that increased amount of dollars for that garment. So that's how the math works out. And then your final question is, how can I prepare a proposal to approach them? Well, that's pretty simple. Uh, just put yourself in the shoes of the buyer. You know, when, when you're about to go into a meeting with a store and you're about to show them your line, think of you being on the other side of that counter and how you would want to be presented. So there's a lot of really fundamental basics, right? Like show up on time, be professional, smell good, don't have bad breath, right? Uh, have your paperwork in order, um, have your presentation materials looking good, uh, you know, pre-rehearse your, your pitch. If you're presenting off an iPad, make sure it's charged, you know, really simple common sense stuff. And then have all your answers sort of ready to go. You know, the answers that are common sense going to be asked, like uh, how much am I paying? So have your pricing right. Do you have minimums? Have that question figured out. Oh, I'm interested. When can you ship? Uh, have that question figured out, you know? So you wanna have sort of just run through in your head like a dry rehearsal of everything that might possibly come up in that meeting uh, and just be prepared for it. And that's really it. I mean, you know, sales is, is an art form. It's not a, it's not a science, you know? Um, there's a lot of magic behind it. So the more positive you are, the more personality you have, the more charismatic you are, um, these things are gonna help you to close that deal. And, you know, I got to be honest, sometimes I find that uh, a lot of creatives and a lot of designers, they tend to be more aloof and a little bit more antisocial. You know, they, they just sort of like like to put their head down and work in design, whereas a, a good salesperson needs to be very open, charismatic, you know, smiley, always smiling, always positive, always up. And a lot of creatives and designers just aren't like that, which is why, you know, sales is one of the first people that a brand tends to bring on because it's very, very difficult for a designer who creates something to then go out there and sell the same thing. Because when a store says, no, I'm not interested, I don't like this, it's not my thing, it's kind of comes as a personal attack to the designer, naturally so. So it's great to be able to like make that separation and farm out the sales to somebody else. Um, so I don't know who you are, but if in fact that is your personality, that's something you might want to explore. So. I hope that was helpful. Again, thank you for the question. And if you've got a question that you wanna ask me or the crew here, again, send it off to questions at businessofhype.com. Thanks again, Keon.
The Business of Hype is created in collaboration with Bright Young Things. You can check out their work at byt.nyc. Our director is Daniel Novetta. Our audio engineer is David Rogers Berry. Associate producers are Sydney Pacumpera and Christina Hong. This episode was recorded at Sibling Rivalry Studio and on location at Maze Fest in Sao Paulo, Brazil. I'm Jeff Staple, and you've been listening to The Business of Hype on Hype Beast Radio. Thank you.